This is David Spence for energytradeoffs.com, and we're here today with Scott Berger. Scott is a recently minted PhD from MIT, and he is currently an, the analytics lead or an analytics lead at Form Energy, also a research affiliate at MIT and a lecturer there where he's affiliated with the um, Center for Environmental Policy and Research and also the MIT Energy Initiative. Uh, did I get that introduction right, Scott? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm the analytics lead and uh, the Center for Energy and Environmental Policy Research. Okay, great. Well, thank you for the <laughs> record and thank you for sitting down to talk to me. Yeah, I'm, ha I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for having me, David. So the reason I wanted to talk to you uh, and, I, and the reason I became aware of your work was from a series of tweets that you put up on Twitter describing a part of the research that is in your dissertation. Uh, addressing a way or ways to think about the value of distributed energy resources and particularly distributed solar uh, in the electricity system. And I thought it was a particularly interesting way of thinking about and framing the problem. And you also brought some data to the, to the discussion. And so that's what I'd like to talk about today. And I, th I think I'd like to start by asking you to just sort of highlight briefly what the particular values are that distributed resources can bring to the electric grid of the future. You know, when, it's, when you're talking about the value that distributed resources can bring, I think it's helpful to think about not just the value they bring, but kind of the differentiated value they bring relative to other resources. But when we're talking, when we're thinking about solar and storage and the value that they bring when they're distributed, I think it's helpful to think about what value they bring as a distributed resource that those same resource, those same resources couldn't bring as a centralized resource. You know, when we're thinking about solar, for example, you know, solar obviously produces zero carbon electricity. Uh, so there is some, uh, you know, emissions mitigation benefit of or value of integrating solar into the grid. But you know, megawatt hour for megawatt hour or unit of energy for unit of energy, distributed solar doesn't uh, necessarily mitigate more emissions than you know, an equivalent utility scale system would. So there are certain things that distributed resources can do that you know, more large scale uh, resources um, can do equally as well or maybe even you know, better for lower cost. Um, so the kind of differentiated value that, that uh, distributed resources bring tends to focus around, um, you know, the ability to potentially mitigate the, mitigate the need for, or delay the need for investments in uh, transmission and distribution network infrastructure. So kind of TND deferral, which is something that's commonly referred to, and uh, the ability to kind of mitigate losses, so electrical, you know, line losses, that occur as power flows from, you know, trans from power plants over transmission lines, over distribution lines down to load. Those are kind of the, the really common sources of value that distributed resources bring that centralized resources uh, can't necessarily bring because, you know, centralized resources are located in transmission networks and, and uh, can't necessarily locate downstream of uh, constraints or, or can produce the losses that flow over networks. Would, would the idea of resilience be wrapped into that, or would that be an additional uh, a benefit? That, that's a great point, actually. And re reliability and resiliency are, uh, I, I would argue, um, more potential benefits at this point than, than real benefits. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the other aspect when thinking about reliability and resiliency is, are those private benefits or public benefits? So there are systems, you know, solar plus storage systems being deployed today to enable individual customers to island themselves uh, from the grid in cases where the grid goes down. Um, and so that, that individual customer is certainly, uh, you know, in the cases where the grid goes down, receiving some benefit and that they have power when everyone else doesn't. Um, but that is not necessarily a public benefit. And so the question is, you know, how, how do we want to be designing incentives, you know, public incentives or incentives funded by other ratepayers or through taxes or, or however it is um, for those private reliability benefits? Yeah, and that point is a nice segue to the way your your set of tweets began, which was to address the sort of regressive elements of um, of rooftop solar, at least as financed through net metering. Um, and though you started by sort of some simple observations that I think are probably intuitive to most people, which is that rooftop solar adopters tend to be wealthier than non-adopters. And from there, you sort of proceed in this discussion to sort of talk about the ways and, and to offer data about the ways in which net metering can influence the relative bills, power bills or electric bills of sort of the wealthy and the less wealthy. Can you uh, explain the point you were making there a little bit better than I just did? What we tried to do in this in this research is to examine a under, we think, under-examined aspect of our support mechanisms for um, distributed solar. So one question is, how much do we wanna pay for the value that distributed uh, solar provides? And then the other question is, how do we recover the cost of that payment? Um, We were really focused on the question of how do we recover the cost of that payment? Um, So net metering is one way, is one policy or regulation that uh, basically decides how we pay for uh, the value that distributed resources provide. So the idea is that, you know, when I generate solar, uh, when I generate power from solar on my roof, I, you know, offset some power from the grid or maybe export some power to the grid. And net metering stipulates that I get paid the full retail value um, for that power. And then the way that that cost or, you know, the way that that subsidy tends to be recovered is the utility then says, okay, you know, I have a total amount of cost um, and maybe I, you know, maybe I've now recovered less of those costs uh, from my customers than I, you know, previously would have because some customers have rooftop solar. So I'm going to raise the, you know, raise the prices slightly. And when I raise that, those prices a little bit for everyone, you know, that has different impacts on different customers. That's the dynamic we were examining. And, and, you know, as, you alluded to, you know, given that rooftop solar adopters tend to be quite wealthy, the way that this ends up playing out is that as as people adopt solar, wealthy people are more and more likely to be the people that are installing solar panels. So they're more and more likely to be reducing their energy bills. Um, and then, you know, as the regulator and as the utility increases rates to, you know, make sure that they're uh, revenue neutral or they're recovering all their costs, the people that don't have rooftop solar are the people that end up kind of bearing the majority of the burden for that. Uh, and so their bills actually go up, uh, even if their, you know, consumption uh, profiles don't change at all. Um, so what we did is we basically modeled or simulated rooftop solar adoption um, across single family homes 
And in this case, we were looking at the Chicago, Illinois area. And we basically saw that as rooftop solar penetration increased, uh, the dynamic played out as exactly as you might ex expect. You know, adopters of rooftop solar saw their expenditures decrease. Non-adopters of solar saw their expenditures increase. And because, you know, adopters are on average wealthier than non-adopters, this led to a dynamic where on average low-income expenditures were rising pretty substantially. And um, so, you know, in the data set that we looked at, uh, you know, under the traditional net metering scheme, low-income customers could see their expenditure, low-income customers without solar could see their expenditures rise by as much as $500 a year. And when, what level of penetration did you see that, that uh, size figure? So that, that's at a very high level of penetration. That, that's, a, you know, 75% of single-family homes okay. having rooftop solar. Um, you know, but even at levels, uh, you know, so there are certain markets today where 25% of uh, single-family homes have rooftop solar. So uh, parts of Hawaii are like that. Parts of uh, California are like that. Uh, certain pockets of even, you know, Arizona and other, other uh, places are like that. And at around 25% of single-family homes having rooftop solar, we started to see pretty substantial uh, bill impacts, you know, about, uh, depending on the assumptions you make, anywhere between, you know, $80 per year to $100 per year increases uh, for low-income customers. Great. Uh, the reason I ask is because sometimes people acknowledge the regressive nature of net metering but argue that, it's not, that the magnitude of the effect isn't very big because penetration levels are so low in most places, but it sounds like in some places they're not all that low. Yeah, that's exactly right. And we've, we've spoken to, for example, uh, consumer advocates and they almost unanimously say, yes, we know net metering is a problem. And yes, we know this is something we need to address, but it's an issue that's, you know, far out into the future or, or we perceive it as an issue that's far out into the future. But, you know, what we've seen is that, Net metering and just you know gen subsidies in general are really sticky and they take a long time to change and they have a lot of uh, you know once they're in place they uh, kind of generate a, a lot of momentum behind themselves. Um, so you know I think this is an, you know if we all recognize this to be an issue, it's an issue that we would benefit from getting out ahead of mm -hmm. and um, you know trying to address today while the effects are still minimal. Right, and you, you speculate or not speculate, you talk a little bit in the, in the series of tweets about some of the policy responses to this, and we've had some conversations with people here, including some energy poverty uh, analysts who talk about the need to subsidize distributed solar for low-income people, and you, you, are, you acknowledge that and you uh, argue that it's a, a good step, but, it's, but you don't see it as a solution to this problem. Yeah, again, I think, like you said, it's a really great step that you know, these, these community solar programs or just kind of solar for low-income customer programs are really um, great programs. I, I would not, you know, I would not discourage anyone from uh, kind of promoting those programs, but it, it is not a full-scale solution to the problem because it doesn't solve the underlying cost shift problem. Uh, so, you know, what we saw in our research is that you know, there are actually some low-income customers that adopt solar. About 5% of rooftop solar adopters are in the bottom income quintile, meaning they're in the lowest 20% of incomes. Um, there are some low-income customers that adopt solar, same for you know, the second income quintile, et cetera. Um, 
And so there's not only kind of income quintile to income quintile cost shifts. So there's not only the cost shift that's happening from high income customers to low income customers, there's the cost shift that's happening from solar adopters to non-solar adopters within the same uh, income quintile. So, you know, what these programs might end up doing is, you know, just exacerbating the problems for the people that aren't lucky enough to get access to those uh, programs. So unless you had, you know, 100% um, access uh, or 100% penetration for low, uh, of rooftop solar for low-income customers, um, you're not going to like really solve the problem for uh, the customers that are you know less you know are not fortunate enough to have access to those programs. And similarly, you're not going to solve the problem for you know let's say the middle-income folks that are now paying a lot more uh, money for their electricity than they they used to. So, given that, what what are the policy changes that you'd like to see? Uh, to try and address this issue? Um, so the, the unfortunate reality is there's no kind of easy, uh, you know, silver bullet solution. You know, the, in the ideal world, what you do is you, you know, you charge, um, putting my economist hat on, you know, you charge the social marginal cost for electricity. You then pay uh, the, the social marginal, you know, uh, uh, value, if you will, to um, solar generators or rooftop solar generators as they're producing. Um, so, you know, basically if I'm offsetting, you know, one kilowatt hour of energy um, and, you know, reducing some amount of carbon, I should get uh, I should get paid for that, uh, the true value there. The value of solar tariffs that I've seen try to get at that. They try to include a uh, an environmental value there as well. It tends to include or it often includes both a health benefit and a uh, potential climate benefit. So uh, the point is, you know, the way we have made a decision today through net metering about how we're going to recover the cost of, uh, you know, these these rooftop solar subsidies in a really kind of non-transparent and uh, kind of arbitrary way that ends up being really regressive. I, I would say what we want to do is, is pay for the value that these resources are providing. Um, and then if we decide you know, above and beyond that, we want to incentivize more uh, rooftop solar that we recover those costs, the cost of those subsidies in, you know, a thoughtful and, uh, you know, ideally progressive way. It basically all boils down to the fact that uh, for low-income customers, the marginal value of a little bit more income is much higher than the marginal value of a little bit more income to high-income customers. Right. Uh, or in other words, the marginal the marginal value of spending a little less on your electricity to a low-income customer might actually be a lot higher than the marginal value of spending a little less on your electricity to a higher-income customer. In your Twitter description, you also explored the idea of, se- of you know, a separate capacity charge and a separate energy charge. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that fit into what we've been talking about so far? We want to basically pay the marginal value for you know the, the uh, energy that those customers are producing and then recover the cost of the of the uh, transmission and distribution infrastructure that remains in kind of a, a, a minimally distorted way. So the ideal way to do that is through a fixed charge, or basically kind of you can think of it as like an access fee. You know, I, I need to pay some money to have access to the electricity infrastructure. Um, and you know, historically, regulators and consumer advocates and uh, customers have been very uh, – there are a lot of reasons why people don't like fixed charges. 
one of the reasons why people don't like fixed charges is that they fear they are very regressive, meaning, you know, because low-income customers tend to consume less electricity on average than high-income customers, if we move charges from, you know, a dollar per kilowatt hour format to a dollar per customer format, we might, you know, basically disproportionately raise uh, costs for low-income customers. So that's the, the fear is that these fixed charges are regressive. Um, in some other research that is, you know, related to but not, um, but, but not in the same paper as this solar research, we showed that there are many alternative ways to recover, uh, you know, fixed charges that are not progressive. And in fact, you can design them to be very progressive if you want. Um, so, you know, one of the solutions that we discuss in that in the tweet thread in the paper is basically ensuring that you're charging the, the marginal value and then recovering any, you know, uh, in, any additional transmission distribution and other kind of policy and regulatory costs through fixed charges um, and that you design those fixed charges in a progressive way. So we've been talking about ways to make um, compensation or the you know, allocation of the costs of keeping the grid operating between adopters and non-adopters better, fairer, more efficient. But we haven't talked about what we started with, which is the sort of relative value of distributed solar versus, say, utility-scale solar. And you started out by saying that there are some benefits to to solar that both types of solar share and some that are unique to distributed uh, energy. And we've been talking about some of the things we've been talking about compensating distributed energy for are attributes that utility-scale solar has as well and, and uh, doesn't always get compensated for. Um, what do you say to that? I mean, what, how should we think about that issue? So, you know, ideally we would say, okay, you know, we want to incentivize solar and now what's the best way, you know, what's the best kind of form factor uh, for that solar or for us to procure that solar? Um, you know, do we want to do a utility scale or do we want to do a distributed scale or what's the mix of distributed and, and utility scale that we want to procure? Um, you know, I think we should, as a, as a society, as we think about kind of planning for decarbonization, have a more uh, purposeful conversation around that because, you know, how it's historically proceeded is we've had this kind of haphazard regulatory landscape. You know, ideally we would uh, place rooftop solar and distributed solar, or sorry, uh, central scale solar and distributed solar on a more level playing field uh, and, and basically procure the lowest cost um, you know, resources that allow us to decarbonize at the rate that we want. Um, you know, I, I think before it's worth noting, um, kind of before we get too deep in this conversation, that, you know, the reason that it's important to think about, uh, you know, whether we are paying too much for distributed solar is that, you know, decarbonization is a marathon, not a sprint. And, you know, I've said that in the past and some people have said, actually, you know, decarbonization is a sprint because it's really urgent and we need to decarbonize a lot really fast. And I get that, but it's still going to, you know, even in our most aggressive decarbonization scenarios, we are, you know, decarbonizing the power sector through 2050, right? So this is, you know, a 30 year effort um, and it's going to cost, a, you know, a lot of money. And there are a lot of, of course, environmental and other benefits that come with that decarbonization effort. Uh, so when I point out that it costs a lot of money, there are a lot of benefits that come with it. Um, but, you know, if we are overspending or we're, you know, kind of allocating resources in a really inefficient way, we're just making our job harder. 
Uh, and that's especially true when we think about the role that electricity plays in decarbonization, right? We, we, you know, tend to focus on electricity as kind of the linchpin for decarbonization efforts because we, uh, you know, we want to, we basically have the most, the broadest portfolio of, you know, economically uh, available and attractive options to decarbonize electricity. We don't really have low-cost liquid fuels, uh, low-cost zero-carbon liquid fuels at our fingertips or solid fuels at our fingertips, and it's really hard to provide, you know, high-quality industrial-grade heat uh, with zero-carbon today. Um, so we want to use electricity as kind of the primary energy carrier in a, or as one of the primary energy carriers, if not the primary energy carrier in this low, in, in this low carbon decarbonized future. And if we're making electricity much more expensive than it needs to be, we're just making that job all the much harder. We're making it harder for people to switch to electric vehicles, to switch to, you know, uh, electric heat, you know, heating for homes and whatnot. So, um, it's really important that we do this, you know, we go about this decarbonization effort, um, you know, in a, in a cost-efficient and economically efficient manner. Uh, so that's why I think it's important to think about, you know, whether we are paying too much for rooftop solar and, and for other types of uh, zero-carbon resources. In Nevada, a number of years ago, this was maybe three or four years ago, uh, NV Energy, which is the big utility there, um, proposed changes to their net metering scheme. And they basically wanted to, you know, reduce the amount they were paying for rooftop solar. Basically all in the energy was saying is we just signed the lowest cost PPA in the history of the United States for solar electricity. We just signed a contract at that time, you know, obviously solar has decreased in cost over the last three years. They said, we just signed a contract for about three cents per kilowatt hour for, for solar at the utility scale. And you're asking us through net metering, to pay 12 to 15 cents per kilowatt hour for rooftop solar. We would just rather procure the cheap stuff than this really expensive stuff. And they were just lambasted in, uh, you know, in, in um, you know, the kind of popular press, which, which I thought was a really funny and uh, poignant depiction of this challenge of, you know, how do we, how do we go about procuring these low cost resources and, and really being efficient with how we decarbonize. The key that I want to get across in this research, I guess, is, you know, there's there's the question of how much you want to pay for rooftop solar, and then there's the question of um, how you want to recover those costs. And, you know, when when we when we basically tweeted about this research, when we kind of started to engage with the public about this research, we heard a lot of people coming back with feedback saying. Yes, but rooftop solar is really valuable, so we want to pay a lot for it. Um, and my response there would be, that's great. So imagine we really, you know, we really valued rooftop solar and we wanted to pay a lot for people that installed rooftop solar. Even in that world, net metering and the way that we recover those costs of those subsidies could still be really regressive. So this isn't, you know, this research isn't really intended to be a critique of rooftop solar but rather a critique of how we recover the cost of the payments that we make to rooftop solar installers, or rather to the people that install rooftop solar. And by all accounts, the way that we recover the cost of paying for rooftop solar today is pretty regressive. And, it, you know, if we are, if we are okay with that trade-off, 
then that's fine. But we just need to be clear that that's the trade-off we're making. Great. That's a good note on which to end. And um, thanks so much for sitting down to talk to us today. Yeah, David, I really appreciate you reaching out and, and setting up this conversation.